And those of you who do not have notes need some. So Larry has some. Larry? John? And you can turn to page 13. And before we pick up where we left off last time, let me encourage you to respond to the things that apply to you that are in our program. We have a number of events that are coming up, some of them that require you to actually take some action, do, do something, sign up or something like that. And it's very, very easy. I know from long experience it's very easy to, <clears throat> excuse me, when you hear something announced, say, yes, I'm going to do that. And then you walk out because you start talking to people and so on, and uh, several weeks can go by and you don't do what you intended. But we have the uh, petition drive that we have a table set up for. So if you want to affix your name to that uh, and weren't able to do so during Cafe Community, that table will be there after we're done and next week as well. But we just have the two weeks, okay? So there's the petition out there. And then there's also the blood drive coming up on September the 5th. So please make uh, note of that, and in two ways you can respond to it. One, we're going to have to have folks on sh in shifts from 1.30 to 7.30, a couple hours for each shift for uh, registration as people come in, also uh, snacks after people finish donating blood. So there are a few different things that we need a few bodies for. So if you want to volunteer for one of those two-hour shifts, then see the information table and uh, give them your name, and we'll get with you about when you're available. But also, we need people to donate the blood as well. And there are time slots in 15, I think they're in 15-minute increments, that uh, the Red Cross uh, wants us to do them. So there's a, a sign-up form for that. So see that at the information table. And if you guys could do those before you leave today, that would be great. And I encourage you to look in your program at the other stuff that's coming up. The fall is upon us. School is going to be starting soon. Yikes, all too soon. But uh, that means the fall program kicks into gear. September the 18th, Wednesday, is our midweek program. We have services for ministries for all ages. So mark that, September the, the 18th. Um, and then on uh, September 8th, on Sunday, we're going to have Bethany Christian Services here. You don't have to do anything with that, but just uh, be here if you can, because I think it'll be a very informative time for us. All right, we're in our series, When We Have to Choose, and this is about decision-making and the will of God. And over the last several weeks, we have looked at erroneous ways that people make decisions and try to make those decisions within God's will. Some of those uh, erroneous ways are feeling-based decisions or outcome-based decisions. If it turns out right, then it must have been a good decision. If it turns out bad, it must have been a bad decision. And the outcome doesn't necessarily inform us as to whether it was a good decision or not. You can make good decisions that have difficult consequences. And you can make, uh, you can make wrong decisions that God in His providence overrules and, and they turn out well. But that doesn't mean it was a good decision. So feeling-based or outcome-based, another erroneous way is opportunity-based. Uh, a door is opened that we interpret as a sign of God's will, and therefore we need to, we think, move through that. So we looked at these erroneous ways that we make decisions and have been trying to home in on the one proper way to make decisions, and that is instead of feeling-based or outcome-based or opportunity-based, 
It's purpose-based decision-making. So early on in your notes, we talked about purpose-based decision. If you haven't decisions, if you haven't been able to be with us, all of these sessions are recorded at our website, so you can listen to those with the notes in hand. But if we're going to make decisions that are purpose-based, that means I've got to know what my purpose is. So we spent a few weeks looking at what God says our purpose as His creatures, and then in particular as His people, is in His world. We saw that it is to glorify God, that is to display His character in His world, but that God has laid out in Scripture various ways at various times in which that happens. And we're living at a time in which that is taking place through the agency of His mission, the Great Commission carried out through His church. And so we've tried to prove that in the notes you have. Appendix A is all about the mission and how that's attached to the local church. So if you weren't here for any of that, again, I encourage you to listen online and look at that. So now we, having, I hope, agreed, understood at least, that the purpose that God has for us is to bring Him glory as we each participate in carrying out His mission through His church. That being the case, then, I need to have the ability, and you need to have the ability, to look at the roadmap, the, the, the message that God has given, the guidebook that He's provided, namely Scripture, the Bible. And I need to use that as directed in order for me, then, to make decisions that fit into this overall purpose. So the first thing we've really tried to hammer home is, as you make good decisions, begin with the end in mind. What is the end? Glorify God by carrying out His mission through the agency of His church. But now I have to make individual decisions in my life. And in order for me to make those individual decisions, I'm going to need to consult God's revealed will. If I want to make decisions that are in keeping with God's will, I need to know where to find it. It's found in what He has made known, revealed in Scripture. But that means I've got to know how to use it. So we're spending a few weeks making sure we know how to use the Bible so that we can make God-honoring decisions. So we'll pick that up on page 13 in just a moment. But with that, reminder, let me just ask you that. As I, as I, as you make decisions in your life that we want to bring honor to God, and we come to understand that God has left us here, after we come to Jesus, after we've been saved, He's left us here. Now I state that on purpose that way. If you think your purpose is simply to know if you're going to heaven, you already know the answer to that, right? If you've come to Jesus, I already know I'm going to heaven. But he's left us here. So that then raises the question, well, why? Because we got work to do. What does that work? Carry out the mission through the agency of his church to bring glory to him and his world. Well, how then should I make my decisions in keeping with that? And the issue that each of us has to wrestle with is this. Am I trying to fit God's agenda into mine, or am I shaping my agenda around God's? And the way most of us live, we make our choices, do whatever it is we like to do, hear me carefully, move wherever we feel like moving, did you all hear that? I mean, we just make our decisions about moving, about occupations, about you name it, because it appeals to us in some way. 
And there's nothing sinful in particular about the choice at hand, the particular occupation I'm contemplating, the job change, the location that I'm thinking about going. There's nothing sinful about it other than no thought is given to how this advances the mission of God. So I'm asking you, do you think that way? Do you make your decisions about where you're going to be and what you're going to do based upon the criteria of whether or not this intentionally advances the mission that God has given us? And the answer for most of us is no. I got my agenda, and I am so thankful that God gets on board. That's the way we roll. And God is gracious enough to baptize my agenda. Now, I know I've gone from preaching to meddling, but in order for us to really grasp this, we have to ask these kinds of probing questions. We do. And I don't want a show of hands. I just want you to ask yourself, how many of you have your dream location that you are you are working toward. I can't wait till I get out of Michigan. I've got a location in mind. This will be my dream spot. I'm sick of Michigan winters, and as soon as I can get out of here, I'm out of here. And the place you're going to is perfectly fine, as good as any, whatever it is. It's, it's not the Las Vegas Strip. Let's assume that. So it's not obviously sinful, it's a fine place, as good as any, but I want to go there. Why do I want to go there? Because I want to go there. Because it's a better temperature, because it's a better you know, climate, whatever. And my question is, should we or should we not think about those decisions in terms of whether or not they advance the mission? Now, if you've been thinking about that and you've been waiting to make an announcement about your relocation, I'm sorry about the timing. <laughs> I didn't know that. And if you make an announcement next week that we're, our family is relocating after years of planning and we're relocating, then Lord bless you. We'll have a commissioning service for you at your new mission in Hawaii or wherever it is, okay? Really, and it's, it's, you know, look, it's not about what I think or, you know, what, what I'm pleased with. It's about what God is pleased with. That's what this is all about. And so I'm simply saying that's the way we, we make our decisions. Or I'm looking for my dream job. But my dream job is going to take me away from responsibilities that I've been involved in in advancing the Lord's work for a long time. Now, you can extricate yourself from that. You can make arrangements for that, and that might be a wise thing to do. But it might not. And the, and the issue is, are you thinking about that? Or are we simply pursuing our agenda and asking God to get on board? So if we're going to begin with the end in mind, the end is bringing glory to God by intentionally pursuing His mission through the agency of His church. And that means I center my life around the purpose for which He has placed me here. And I make my decisions accordingly. Now, we covered some of that in the facts of life. We gave you four facts of life in a prior lesson. I encourage you to go back and review that if you, uh, if you need to or if you were not here.
But God has revealed His will to us. God has His sovereign will that is known only to Him, and He has His revealed will that He has made known, revealed in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. But these are revealed to us and to our children so that we might obey them. So God's revealed will is found in Scripture, and how do I use Scripture? Well, in order for me to use Scripture properly, I need to understand that. Page 13, it's not just a book. You see Roman numeral 1. The Bible is not just a book. And last time we were able to see some of the ways in which the Bible is, is more than a book and ways in which people misunderstand how the Bible is put together. Middle of page 13, we've seen that the Bible is often erroneously seen as simply a book of, of sayings or a collection of stories with morals. A book of sayings, stories with morals, or a book of recipes to make life taste better. Or top of page 14, the Bible is a conversation piece. Remember last week we talked about you know, the big Bible on the, on the table that never gets opened, but it's a conversation piece with the scary pictures in it. Or E, the Bible as a prescription to fix my wants and feelings. Or a Bible that never gets used, a paperweight. The Bible is a paperweight. But here's, those are erroneous ways, but here's a seventh and, and proper way to see the Bible, and that's the middle of page 14, the Bible as God's Word. So the Bible is not all of those things. What it is is God's Word, and in God's Word, God is doing a number of things. The first of those, middle of 14, is revealing to us who God is. Now, we say there that every person knows that there's a God, but then the Bible gives us specific information about the God who is. So every person, by virtue of being made in the image of God, by being a creature of God, has access to some information about God. That is, that He exists and that He is the powerful Creator. How do I know that? Romans chapter 1. And Romans chapter 1 is listed for you in the notes there. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." So just by virtue of being a creature made in the image of God, all people have some knowledge of God. He exists and He, he is the all-powerful creator. And they see that in creation. Romans chapter 2 says, because we're given a conscience and have some basic notion of right and wrong, it's another evidence of the lawgiver, God. So all people have that. But in order for people to know specific information, they need more. And so let me talk about that for a bit. In verse 22 of Romans 1, it's not listed there, but the Bible says this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So here's what happens. According to Romans 1, 
people have this information, but they don't act upon the information they have. And that's why the Bible then calls them fools. Because foolishness in the Bible is, of course, the opposite of wisdom. So let's remind ourselves of that. Wisdom is using the knowledge that God has given for the purpose for which he gave it. God gives information. We use that information for the purpose that it's been given. That's wisdom. Foolishness, then, is what? Failure to use the information we've been given for the purpose, purpose that it's been provided. So when the Bible pronounces someone a fool, Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's not saying that he's ignorant. Ignorance means I don't know. The fool is someone who does know but fails to appropriate what he knows. So the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. The truth is he knows there is. But he doesn't want to apply that. He doesn't want to use that. And that's what Romans 1 is now saying. Everybody knows some information about God, that he exists, he's the all-powerful creator, but professing themselves to be wise, they became fools because they don't apply that knowledge, is what Romans 1 is saying. So Romans 1 is teaching that all people know God. But it teaches a second thing, that all people don't want to know God. So, we sometimes get the idea that there are people groping around in the darkness who want to know God, and they're just waiting to know God. And the, the Bible teaches, Romans 1 is very explicit, that there aren't people like that. Romans chapter 3 says, quote, there is no one who seeks God. So we've got whole churches <laughs> that are called seeker churches. You know, who are attended by, like a lot of people, seeker churches. But if Romans 3 is correct, that there is no one who seeks God, then when you open a seeker church, nobody shows up. But that's just me, like reading the book, okay? So people don't want to know God, says Romans 1. What do they do with the information that they have from God? They suppress it. Notice again what the passage says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do this. Suppress the truth. Please hear, friends, you can't suppress what you don't have. They suppress the truth because they have the truth. I mean, the passage goes on to say, they hold it down because that which is known about God is evident. So it's not that I don't have information, it's that I don't want the information I have. And I hold it down. I suppress it. And as a result of that, end of that passage, they are without excuse. The phrase translated without excuse is the negative form of a Greek word that some of you are familiar with. Apologia. We get apologetics from it. And many of you have heard of apologetics. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. So an apologia is a defense. And to engage in a Christian apologetics is to defend the Christian faith. So the negative form of defense, when it says without excuse, it could literally say without a defense. 
So all people stand without an argument, without a defense before God. Because although God has made himself known, people don't want to know this God. So suppress the truth and therefore without excuse. Well, what changes that? If people don't want to know God, what changes people who don't want to know God into people who desire God with love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your mind? What changes that? It's the Holy Spirit of God moving upon a dead heart and breathing new life into that spiritually dead individual. And how can that happen? Can that happen within my power, within your power? Of course not. John chapter 3, Jesus says you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says the wind blows where it wants, wherever it pleases. And in the context, Jesus is using wind for the Spirit. The Spirit blows where the Spirit wants to blow. I don't tell the Spirit where to blow. And the Spirit moves upon the heart, regenerating, giving new life to that spiritually dead person. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When we were all by nature children of wrath. God who is rich in mercy, verse 4. Verse 5 then says, made you alive. You were dead and you've been made alive. So this is where people are. God reveals who he is in creation, but by nature, people don't want to know God. They hold that truth down. And unless the Holy Spirit of God moves upon the heart of that person, they're not interested then in not only the information they have, limited though it be, let alone more information about God. Show up at church and learn more about God. Who wants to do that? Somebody who's been made spiritually alive. And so, God has made himself known in creation, but people hold that down. And the last sentence before point B, it's the Bible that reveals to us truth about the only God that exists so that we can know him. Limited information available in creation, all people hold that down. But on those whose God's Spirit moves so that they do genuinely want to know him because he has made their spiritually dead spirit alive, God provides more information about himself in Scripture. It's the Bible who reveals to us who God is, and then the Bible, B, reveals to us what God is doing. Now, we're going to see that God does that through the unfolding story of his work within his creation. And at this point in his unfolding story, the church is central to his purpose. And that's why you and I are responsible for God to align our lives with his purpose that he's carrying out through his church. But before I move on with that, let me ask you guys a question, just to make sure you're awake and that you got at least a portion of what I was just saying. Is it enough for somebody to say, I believe in God? If somebody says, I believe in God, does that mean they have a relationship with him? You see, because the evidence of God is all over the place, right? 
Now, the implications of what it means to believe, to truly believe in God, people suppress. They don't want to acknowledge Him as their master, their owner, and all the implications of that. But people know that. And so you'll hear people say, in fact, all studies show at least 90% of people say, I believe in God. And the new atheist resurgence notwithstanding, you still have large numbers of people, I believe in God. And I'm just here to tell you, friends, that saying I believe in God ain't enough. Because God has revealed Himself and what He is doing in Scripture and in particular in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not just I believe in God, but I believe in and am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. My poor daughters, when they bring a young man home, they know he's got to be a follower of Jesus. And it is not going to fly for them to say he believes in God. Tell me, Joey, what God do you believe in? And what is the tangible evidence that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus? You know, I'm not much for church, but I believe. Well, you know what? Jesus is much for church. He gave himself up for the church. Church was his idea. So, move on to some other chick. Okay? Now, I'm saying this because parents, we've got to teach our kids, we've got to teach our kids that following Jesus means following Jesus full throttle. Okay? And it's not, you know, I sort of believe, and yeah, I kind of believe, and I pick and choose what I want to believe. I feel much better now. Let's move on. I think I'm onto this, my daughter kick because we're taking her to, to college this week. Pray for us. Top of page 15. The Bible is the story of God's work in human history. And so the Bible unfolds a story. So if you're going to use the Bible as directed, you don't, as I said last week, atomize, A-T-O-M, the Bible. You don't look for a proof text. You look for whether or not what I'm doing and what I'm contemplating doing, the decision that I'm looking to make, whether or not that is in keeping with the overall story of the Bible. That's why it's so frustrating if you've ever, well, when we were young people, we all did it. Now young people are doing it to us, right? And as adults, we tend to do it as well. But especially young people say, where in the Bible does it say, I can't fill in the blank, right? Where does it say in the Bible, I can't do whatever it is that they're contemplating? And there's no proof text for that. There's no verse that says, Thou shalt not go here on this night with these people. Well then, let's party. That's the conclusion of the teen. But the question is, is what I'm doing in keeping with the God who is made known in the story of the Bible? So now let's look at those interactions of God with His people and ask ourselves, whether or not what I'm considering is consistent with the character of God made known in those relationships. 
Two-thirds of the Bible is narrative. Two-thirds. That is, two-thirds of the Bible is a story being narrated. So you're not going to find a proof text. What you're going to find is God's interaction in two-thirds of the Bible with Him interacting with His people in various circumstances. And fully two-thirds of the 1,189 chapters in the Bible are narrative. And God has given us enough stories of His interaction with His people for you to find one similar to what you're thinking about. So these are given to us for our instruction and for our warning. So you shouldn't do, and our young people shouldn't do, show me the verse that says I can't. What we should do is come to know the God who has made himself known in Scripture, who he is and what he is doing through the unfolding story of his work in history. And then ask ourselves, how do I fit into that? And how can I make decisions that further, intentionally further that? C, middle of page 15. That means the Bible reveals, yes, who God is and what He is doing, and our call, our call to be in God's story. Now, if you'll skip down to the bottom of page 15, the Bible's got to then be used as directed in order for it to have its effect. The purpose for which God gave the Bible is to enable us to know God's will and to do it. Doctrine, teaching, is not an end in itself. Rather, God has communicated truth so that we might better serve Him. Notice the purpose clause given in the most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So why was the Bible given so that I'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work? It wasn't given for teaching. It wasn't given for rebuking or correcting or training. It's useful for all those things, but it does all of that stuff so that I'll then live God's will. So following are some ways in which God's purpose for the Bible is sometimes unintentionally undermined. Page 16. One is, in giving only nominal authority to the Bible. Nominal means in name only. I'm convinced that the vast majority of professing Christians fit in this category. The Bible is my authority for, final authority for life and practice in name only. When what the Bible says comes up against something I want to do, the Bible loses. That's the way it is for most professing Christians. And in my ministry, I have seen this over and over again. So somebody comes to a hard place in life and God calls them to do hard things. And they didn't sign up for that. So even though God says, do it this way, I'm not going to do it. God says, you don't get to end your marriage because you're sick of it. 
You don't get to do that. You don't get to end your marriage just because your spouse is a jerk. Your spouse may be really a jerk. The Bible gives conditions under which you can end your marriage. And there are two. You're abandoned or they commit adultery. Gives those two. Lots of marriages are hard. Lots of people are in marriages where that person turned out to be something different than I thought I was getting into. But having made a vow before Almighty God and in the covenant of marriage, if you say the Bible is my final authority in all matters of faith and practice, then unless and until you are abandoned or they commit adultery, then you are one man, one woman, committed in marriage for one lifetime. Now, I don't know everybody in here, and if you've already blown that one, and I say that respectfully, thanks be to God, he's forgiving. But for those of you who are sitting in here, and you may be contemplating that, I'm telling you, God's authority extends to even when we don't like it, and even when it's uncomfortable. But we give nominal authority to the Bible. In name only, I believe in its authority. But when it gets hard, there's got to be an escape hatch to that. There's got to be a way to get out of that. And friends, I have heard all of them. I've heard all the reasons and all the excuses why I can't and I shouldn't do what God says. So giving nominal authority is one of the ways that God's purpose for the Bible is undermined. Secondly, B, the maker's diet and emaciated Christians. What is that? Anybody ever heard of the maker's diet? And I've never read the maker's diet. So if it turns out the maker's diet is the greatest book since Calvin's Institutes, somebody correct me, okay? But I'm thinking no, all right? Because I've read the book a few times, and as I've read the book, it doesn't appear to me that God's purpose in the Bible is to tell you how to eat. But the Maker's Diet, or the book of Esther, was not given to tell you which beauty aids you should use. So Queen Esther beauty aids, the Maker's Diet, we do all kinds of stuff to market junk out of the Bible. They're not in keeping with what the purpose of the Bible is. And as a result, because of that, because we jump into the Bible looking for some particular thing that I want, you know, God made us, and so God probably tells us what, you know, what stuff I'm supposed to eat. I mean, what did they eat in the garden? Well, you know, one, they, they didn't eat meat in the garden, so that's out. I'm, okay, that's out for me. If you got, so some people say I've got to be a vegetarian then right? Well, in the progress of Revelation, God reveals something else. What does he say to Peter in Acts chapter 10? Peter, kill and eat, right? So you've got these folks using the Bible to try to find answers to questions that God's not answering. He's not looking to answer in the story that is the Bible. Many treat the Bible as, as if it's a buffet, 
walk down past the food, pick and choose what looks good to you. And given man's penchant for junk food, it's little wonder that we're spiritually emaciated, wasting away because we've ignored portions of the diet God has given us. David Henderson in the book you see footnoted, Culture Shift, says this, the Bible is not a collection of Confucian proverbs, each of which can stand alone. It is all of a piece, nor is it a collection of stories. It is one story, the story of how God in Jesus Christ came to indifferent and self-absorbed humanity with the sole notion that those cold and callous men and women should be made right with Him. The term biblical needs to be redefined. It cannot mean merely from somewhere within the pages of Scripture. In light of the way the Bible is written, as a single fabric of thought stretching from front to back, biblical must mean in keeping with what the Bible is about. And the Bible is about God's unstoppable passion to be, made known, to be known, loved, and served through Jesus Christ by those that He has made. It's a good summary, I think. So we don't go into the Bible looking for some answer to something that might make my life better outside of the story that God has revealed Himself in. Here are a couple of other ways where the Bible is misused. One is mysticism, the other is pietism. Many people make it, take a mystical approach to the Bible. What is that? It's a form of religious practice which seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of Him. It's an attempt to experience God through the senses rather than through the mind interacting with God's revelation in Scripture. This approach essentially ignores the text of Scripture while looking for something else. Now, what does that mean in real life? These are people who say, I want to experience God more than learn about God. But if you don't learn about God, how do you know who it is or what it is you're experiencing? Doesn't your experience need to be based on truth? This is why in our church's mission statement, our mission statement is very straightforward. We exist to help people do three things. Learn about God. Love Him and others. Live for His purpose. But they are in that order. Learn about God. And that means thinking about God. That means putting our minds to what God has revealed about Himself in Scripture. That's why we're a Bible church. That's why our slogan is, the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. But mysticism says, give me experience. I don't need all that book learning. Pietism. It's a variety of Christianity that emphasizes personal experience. Pietism could lead to inordinate subjectivism and emotionalism, discourage careful scholarship. It ignores the meaning of the text of Scripture in favor of what it means to me. The revelation of God then becomes subject to the mind of each individual as they read it, rather than being subject to the intent of God as he wrote it. So how does that show up? You're in a group and you call it a Bible study, but here's what it really is. You've got ten people, you're in a circle, you ask somebody to read a verse, they read that verse, and then you go around the room and you ask the question, what is that, what, am I, what is it? What does that verse mean to you? 
But see, friends, before we get into what it means to you, what it means to me, I got to know what it meant to God when he wrote it. I got to know what it meant before I can concern myself at all with what it means now for me and my life. What did it mean in the way it was originally written? And that is simply showing respect for an author. When an author writes anything, he or she expects that people will use it in the way they intended. And if God wrote the Bible, then respect for God means we want to know what God intended when he wrote the various passages of Scripture. And then and only then do we make application of it to ourselves. Now, I'm going to use an illustration with some fear and trepidation. But uh, we're almost done. I'll use this illustration, and then I will run to my car. Okay. But I'm using this illustration from the world of uh, Supreme Court constitutional interpretation. Because you know there are different ways for judges to interpret the Constitution. You guys aware of that? So there are some judges who say they see the Constitution, and this is the term, as a living document, a li the living Constitution, they call it. So the meaning of the Constitution changes to accommodate circumstances, say they. Another approach is sometimes known as strict construction or original intent. And original intent says, what did the people who wrote it mean by what they wrote? And now let's try to apply it. So I'll just give you an example. You know, you got all these amendments, amendments, modifications to the original Constitution. The first ten were passed about a year after the Constitution was ratified. They're called the Bill of Rights. The eighth of those first ten, the Eighth Amendment, prohibits, quote, cruel and unusual punishments. So a government cannot punish a criminal by cruel and unusual means, okay? The Constitution outlaws that. So I got to know what is a cruel and unusual punishment. Now for me, and I'm just letting you know this is how I understand the way you interpret the Bible, is I want to know what the people in the case of the Constitution who wrote it and ratified it, what they intended by the phrase cruel and unusual. So, does anybody know? Did these guys engage in, if somebody committed murder, could they be killed back in those days? They could. So I'm just asking, did the people who wrote it consider capital punishment, just as a, just as a capital punishment, just as a notion, not the particular means of capital punishment, but just the idea that you would take somebody's life because they've taken somebody else's life. Did they consider that cruel and unusual? How do we know this? Because they did it, right? They engaged in it. So that is apparently not what they meant. So if the Supreme Court says, as the Supreme Court did in 1972, if the Supreme Court says... The Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel capital punishment because it's cruel and unusual. Then they have not given credence to what the original author said. Now, they've since reversed that. 
So now capital punishment can be administered. Some states do it and some states don't. But they actually made the ruling that cruel and unusual punishment includes something that the very writers of the Constitution actually did. And you can find examples of that over and over again. So let's use a biblical example. Two weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 2, we were looking at submitting ourselves to the governing authorities, to the emperor or to those who are appointed by him. You guys remember that? Chapter 2 and verse 13. Who was on the throne at the time that was written? Nero. Was Nero a good guy? No. So does the Bible mean when it says submit to the governing authorities that you submit to the governing authorities that you like? Clearly not. Nobody liked Nero. Nero's family didn't like Nero. Nobody in Rome liked Nero. Peter didn't like Nero. Paul didn't like Nero. So I have to look at the original intention of those who wrote it and what was going on at the time they wrote it in order for me to then apply it to myself rather than simply asking the question, what does that mean to you? All right, page 17. If you use the Bible improperly, you'll end up with poor decision-making ability. You'll be unable to fully put the pieces of your life together in a way that makes sense. Your decisions will resemble chef's surprise. You'll just have a hodgepodge of this and that piled into a bowl that's called your life. So what are the rules then that will help guide us? These are ways not to interpret the Bible. What are some rules that will help me to properly interpret the Bible? That's what the middle of page 17 is about. And we will look at those in two weeks. Next week, I will be gone. We're taking our daughter down to Florida. If you guys think about it, please pray for us as we travel and all the emotions that go with that. Got three girls in my house. The emotions have already started. I'm emotional about it as well. It's going to be hard to drop Laney off. And it's going to be hard for Annie. It's going to be hard for Kimmy. It's going to be hard. Okay, so pray, pray for us. Pray for uh, safety and uh, that uh, we'll be able to do it. We think it's good for her. She thinks it's good for her. She'll probably change her mind when she gets there. We'll probably change our mind. Help us to stay with it, all right? This is decision-making in the will of God, people, all right? So pray for us on that. All right. Next week, Pastor Matt is going to preach in the first hour. Ben Ekman is a missionary candidate. He's going to teach in the, in the second hour. And you'll enjoy both of those. And then, Lord willing, we'll be back together in two weeks. Let's ask the Lord to dismiss us. Father, we thank you that we could have this day together to look into your word, to sing praise to you, to be reminded of the value of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on our behalf. We thank you in this hour that we've been able to look at how your word has to be handled and to be careful not to mishandle your word. Lord, it is a a valuable treasure that you have given to us as a light and a lamp for our lives. And so, Lord, help us to see it as such and to use it accordingly. We pray that you'll help us to do that this week as we mine its riches, that we will place it in its context and then apply it appropriately. Lord, we ask you to help us by your Spirit and by your Word to live in a way that honors you and reflects the Lord Jesus. And, Lord, we ask you to grant us safety. Uh, Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.